You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and if you're there, um, we're coming to the close of the story of Joseph. I guess we'll be done with it in June, and we'll do kind of a topical series. We usually do topics in the summer, but, but Joseph's a, a longer one. So we'll have uh, July just to do the topics and pick up a different book. Um, but in Genesis 43, um, we are in the middle of a test for the brothers. Um, uh, how many guys here were here last week when Timothy preached? Timothy Bain, the worship leader, did so good. To give him a text message and a shout out and a hug, he did so good. And I know he put in a lot of study. And I, I told him probably four times this last week, I was like, man, I was like, that message was just so good. Uh, he talked about kind of the beginning of this thing. It's like there's probably three chapters here in a row that really draw out the climax of Joseph's story, which is ultimately uh, this test. And so uh, we're going to kind of like move through that a little bit today. Uh, we're in a series, if you're just joining us, called Joseph and the Technicolor Dream. And we are finding out that God was sovereign over the dream from the beginning. It couldn't have been Joseph that made it right, and it could have been Joseph that messed it up because God is the driver of the bus, and he's getting the dream to its destination. And the dream is more vibrant and beautiful and more mysterious than Joseph would ever know. Is the dream of Joseph feeding the nations and being a part of that salvation plan. Uh, and not only for the salvation of the nations, but for the salvation of his family. And that's really what this test kind of keys in on uh, today um, as, as Joseph moves forward. I want to share a couple of pictures uh, of uh, our recent family escapade. The Wongs, uh, the Wong Six, the big hero six, went out to St. Simon's Island just south of Georgia for our vacation. And uh, there's a picture of little Ollie on what he calls the bed on top of the bed because he doesn't have language for bunk beds yet. Uh, he was super excited to go sleep with the big guys. Next slide. Uh, we have... A uh, picture of uh, some of the cronies there in the golf cart. So as you guys know, my daughter Rose actually did break her ankle. She did not just sprain her ankle, but broke it, which is usually what happens with kids, I think, in May because it ruins all the vacation and the summer plans. But uh, we, got her a, uh, we got her a golf cart, and she was fantastic at it. And Dad's in the room. I don't know if you've taught anybody to drive before, but I get this feeling that you kind of know in the first 10 minutes how good of a driver this person's going to be just by the first 10 minutes. She's got the instincts, guys. She's good. She's doing good. Anyway, she, so she drove the cart, and we, uh, we had a great time. Uh, the cleaning lady in the house basically said that uh, she had cleaned all the different houses and there was only one house, like our house, there's only one house with four stories with an elevator in it. And uh, wouldn't you know that the Lord provided for a house with an elevator for my daughter to get them down? That was really cool. Uh, two, next slide. Um, there's my, that's my, there, there she is. The dream, the dream herself, right? So we're talking about dreams and God knew my dream and he, he, you know, provides my, I have my plans, but he directs my steps. And he got me into South Bend, Indiana, now Greenville. And so, but I was, I was a savage with the old uh, Monopoly game, right? That's a Monopoly game for cards. I took no prisoners. I, 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 I buried people in debt. I let people mortgage and then I took their mortgage. I was just an absolute tycoon. I was killing people. And I should have gone to Vegas with that luck because I was pulling, I don't know if you ever played the cards, but I was doing great. Next slide. Uh, maybe the last one. Yep. Uh, it's a season of life, guys, right now where, um, I'm just starting to realize it's, uh, I got the teacups and I got Space Mountain when I go to Disney World. I got all different ages and everyone's right there kind of in the wonder years, you know, with Kevin Arnold. They're just right there in that age and they're all growing up way faster than I want them to. Uh, and, um, and it's a time when really, you know, our family's big enough where we kind of divide and conquer and we actually, I get to have an excuse to relive my childhood, you know what I mean? Like with Ali, I get to basically play Legos and pretend like it's for him when it's really for me, you know, and uh, drive that go-kart and pretend like it's for Rose when it's really for me. Uh, but um, uh, God has been too good to me. God's been too good to us. He's been good to you. Uh, whether we know it or not, whether or not we give credit, he loves to give things to people even if they don't give anything back. He healed people. Jesus healed people that never gave him a thank you. 
uh, all the time, and, um, and we are too blessed, you know, and, and so I can sense even now, even looking at these pictures, that these are my good old days. These are the days that I'm going to look back on and be thankful for. I'm not even going to remember the challenges. I'm not going to remember, like, the annoying things about the, the gas shortage and the spike and are we going to go on vacation. It's like I'm going to remember the family. I'm going to remember the laughter. And um, I get this sense that although my house is loud right now, we have a little Jack Russell Terrier that's pretty loud and, and little toddlers, and there's lots of crying and tears and emotion from some of those uh, teenagers, as well as just tears of, you know, running into the wall or whatever Ollie's doing. Uh, There's going to be a day that I wish my house was loud again. There's going to be a day that my house is quiet, and I wish it was loud. And so um, Timothy preached a great sermon, and and he basically is talking about the test. This is the test. It is the test for Joseph, but really it's the test for the brothers, how they respond to this brother Joseph who they don't recognize anymore as speaking Egyptian. How they respond to the test is ultimately how they're responding to God. And the test was given through Joseph, affecting their circumstances, deeply affecting their future and the precarious nature, nature, not just to their survival, not their self-actualization, like are they going to live tomorrow? But the test that comes to the brothers is not actually about food. It is about the family that is in the test. It's not ultimately about the famine. It is about how the family responds to the family, the, the, the famine that God is most um, interested in. So just look at this passage with me. It probably has popped out to you if you've ever read a passage like this before since Genesis 50 basically echoes Romans 8 or really vice versa. Romans 8, brand standard, landmark, watermark, a passage of Christian faith that we should meditate on. Paul says, and we know that in all things, says Paul, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. So God is in this things project. And the All Things Project is he's taking the good things and the bad things and he's turning these things, turning these things for good. Good for those who are called and predestined according to his purpose. And so what it means is that God is not uh, making all bad things good immediately for Christians. Have you noticed this? Did you know that Christians have good and bad things in their life? You start following Jesus and the following Jesus mission doesn't make your life all good. Have you figured that one, right? So it doesn't mean that he makes all bad things good. And unlike, I think, bad theology and false teaching, he doesn't call bad things good. Like, it's not like he's laughing at Lazarus dying. He's not happy that people have cancer. He's not here to say, hey, your bad thing, I'm so malicious and capricious about it. I don't care about your bad thing. And so I'm just going to call your bad thing a good thing. And so who's your daddy means you should just get up on my level and start calling bad things good because God didn't call, come here to make bad, call bad things good. It says he's, called, he's come here to work all things to become good. He's working all things for good of those who are called according to his purposes. It's kind of like if you were to get together the ingredients of some cookies and you ate some flour by itself or ate some eggs by itself or ate some, well, I do eat the ch- chocolate chips by themselves before my poor daughter is like less chips in the ratio because I'm too impatient. But he puts the things into the cookies and they come out the other side good, you see? It's not that he's saying the cancer is good or murder is good or whatever bad circumstance that you're in is good, nor is he saying that it needs to be good tomorrow or even in, a, in 10 days or less, otherwise your money back guarantee. He's saying that in the ultimate analysis, he is 
perpetuating reality down a long gradient slope into the bottom of good and glory. And every stick on that river and every flow of water will go down to that place and end in good and glory for those that are called to according to his purposes. And this is what he says is our greatest good. Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What is his greatest good and glory in our life is not to make everything in our life great. It's to make us look like Jesus. How do you tell if something is good? How do you tell if something really is from God? I mean, we want to play the Monday morning quarterback and really the day after the game, we're like, well, it felt good, so it must have been good. Well, sometimes, you know, if you really think about the things that make you look like Jesus... Sometimes the good things weren't as good as you thought that they were. They were distractions. They were idols. They were things that you were making up in your own mind and saying that they were God, right? You were were creating your own sovereignty dream as opposed to trusting it is. And so you called bad things good and you called good things bad. But really, the only thing that we can cause to be a rubric for what is good in our life is, does this thing make me look like Jesus? Because if it's not, it's not good. And so this is the test. This is the test that we are always being tested with. Like, the test is either... Coming, it's now or it's later, or it's, we've just passed it. We're always in the beginning of a test or at the end of one. And this is the test. This test is the sovereignty test. Like, is he sovereign over the dream is the real test. So this is the test that we're going to look at in the scripture this morning, is that Joseph gives his brothers a human test. And the test is largely arbitrary. Like, we probably will never have silver put in our backpack, and we'll probably never have a brother that gets kidnapped, I hope, right? But maybe something like that. And so there's a, there's a test that Joseph gives his brother, and there's three parts of the test. The first one is the Simeon test, which is, I'm going to take Simeon, your brother, and if you don't show back up with your other brother, I'm going to know that you're a liar and a spy, and I'm going to treat you like one, and you'll never see your brother again. So there's a hostage situation with Simeon where he keeps the brother Simeon, and he sends the other brothers home. This is Joseph, who the brothers do not recognize him yet, don't know that it's Joseph, don't know that it's really a test, don't know that Joseph really has their best interests in mind, but to them it feels like a very looming test. So the test of Simeon, secondly, the test of silver, he puts a bunch of money in their backpack and he's going to see if they come back with it or not and how they deal with that money. And so he puts the test, he puts the silver back in their backpack. And lastly, the Benjamin test at the very end of this passage, he's going to give Benjamin a whole bunch of food that they don't get and he's going to test essentially the crux of the idol within their family. What happens when other people get good things that you don't get? How do you handle that? How do you handle... When something that doesn't belong to you comes to you, but the silver test, how do you handle when something good happens to you that should have happened to somebody else? Do you take the credit or you deflect it? And what happens if something bad happens to you and somebody else gets something that you want? How do you handle when somebody gets something that you want that you don't get? That is the Benjamin test. And so these three tests are human tests. People are testing us all the time. They're testing you for eye contact. They're testing you if you call them back. They're testing you if you're, uh, you have integrity. They're testing you uh, how you deal with criticism. People are always testing you because they need to know if you're, if you're safe because people are testing you. But between the lines of that, ultimately the one that's really testing us is God. God is the one that is testing us with our spouse, with the frustrating person at work, with, with the economic ups and downs, the spikes in the oil and the gas and the politics, and he's testing you because at the end of the day, nobody remembers the test. They only remember what they did in the test. And this is the only test that we face. It's the sovereignty test. Who is sovereign over the dream? That is what is being asked of us today. So verse 40, or chapter 23, Genesis says this. Verse 1, Genesis 43, verse 1. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. So 
even the words here at the beginning of this chapter are, are alluding to like the, the enduring, uh, kind of compounding interest of this thing. Like anybody can run a mile, but if you had to run 27 miles in a row, that's where the marathon gets tough. And it's saying this, the famine is not just severe, it's still severe. Like it's still going on. You, you have something in your life that's an ailment, it's a problem in your you know, relational sphere, it's your dad, it's your mom, it's this habit that you have, you're still under it. It's not just that you have it and that it's severe, but it's still severe. And it says that Joseph is, is, is saying to his, to his brothers, or to his sons rather, or excuse me, let me get that right. J- Jacob, who is the patriarch, Jacob over the 12 sons, is saying to the sons that are left, you gotta go get more food. He looks in the, in, the, in, the, in the closet and somebody said, I shouldn't use Honey Nut Cheerios because that's usually the first thing eaten. So it's basic Cheerios. <laughs> Let's just call it that. We're in the famine and all you got left is that thing you bought for a coupon that your dad gave you from Sam's Club and nobody eats it and it sits in the back in the cabinet, whatever that is, normal Cheerios with almond milk. That's all that's left. It's the last possible thing. And he just says, let's just get a little bit more food. Jacob is a survivor. He's a conniver and he's trying to just get through this piece by piece. He's not thinking about the bigger test or the family, or the spiritual nature. He's just trying to get a little bit more food. And we should give Jacob some credit. We feel bad for the guy. He lost his son for 20 years. He thinks his son is dead, and he's never seen him again. His favorite son, Joseph. And so he's hanging on to this last son, Benjamin. And he's saying, I'm not going to send Benjamin, because if I send Benjamin, I'm going to lose Benjamin the way that I lost Joseph, so I'm not going to send Benjamin. But what he's doing, unbeknownst to him, is that in hanging on to the last little bit of control in his life, he's also hanging on to his idol. Because the last thing that you hang on to in your life is probably your idol. And it's probably the thing that got birthed out of pain. Have you ever noticed how people that grew up the poorest in life always want to have the most money? Because they never want to be in that spot again. People that didn't have good clothes and they got made fun of in high school usually become the best dressers. And people that are most depressed are usually the comedians in our life because pain is where the idols get born. So Jacob's hanging on to that last piece of control. I'm not sending him down. And so I just need a little bit more. I need a little bit more clothes. I need a little bit more shopping. I need a little bit more, you know, alcohol. I need a little bit more friends or community, a little bit more, you know, whatever it is, this last little bit more thing that keeps the control that actually fails the test rather than passes it. So he's hanging on to this last little thing and it shows us this really, um, really sober and, and girding and, and, and soul rendering thing within our life is that Although pain can cause us and bring us to surrender, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it becomes the soil of idolatry. Pain doesn't always get healed. Not all pain gets healed in time. Jesus heals wounds, not, not time. And pain has collected into idolatry in Joseph's life, and he's hanging on to the last shred of control that he has for himself, not knowing it's the only thing that's really hurting him. It's his idol. So verse 3 says, Judah, the fourth son, who is the most of a rascal of this whole family, stands up to be a leader. And from the rest of this passage, he's going to be the leader of the family. It's going to say Judah and the brothers and not just the brothers. And so Judah, he reminds dad of the test. Dad, it's not about the Cheerios. This man has warned us solemnly, if we don't send this brother down, we're going to die. This is what Judah says. You can't control this famine. You can't control what Joseph said to you. You can't control what Benjamin's going to do. You can't control what's going to happen when, we send, when you send us down on this trip. And so the cards are not in your hand, dad. You don't have any more control. He says, surely, surely, it's like twice, solemnly, this this guy, you know, he's saying, this man, Joseph, warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. This is the Simeon test. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. 
And verse six says, Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me? He projects that, that pain, that anguish, that, that blame. You're the fault for the test. You're the reason why I'm being tested, says Israel. Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? If you've ever walked through grieving before, um, the, the psychology will say, you know, we have anywhere from five to seven stages of grieving. Grieving is just what humans do because grieving is our, you know, moving away from pain. And pain is a compelling force in our life. Whether it's big pain like physical pain or breaking something or, you know, experiencing a burn or something like that, all the way down to just the pain of a relationship changing, we are always in the classroom of pain. Pain is a part of this process, and how we respond to pain very much uh, orchestrates and engineers how we um, are being formed and shaped as a person with or without Jesus. And so on the board there, there's, you know, the processes of grieving. It says denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. In a sense, it's about control. It's about when I'm in pain, I am, I am, I am uh, intrinsically, instinctively given to needing to control more things when I'm in pain. I don't want to be out of control. The last thing I want when I'm in pain is to be out of control, to not have control. And so it starts with denial. It's saying, well, yeah, I know that they left me and they packed all their bags and they moved away and they're saying they're getting a divorce, but nah, they're, they're, just, they're just mad. They'll, they'll come back around. They'll come back around. That's, that's the denial. And then anger says like, you know, three months or six months pass and they're not coming back and how could they? And I gave everything to this marriage and that's the way that they repay me that jerk. I hope that, you know, God's gonna get him for what he's doing. God's on my side. He's gonna vindicate me. That's what anger says. Bargaining says in the past, it goes back and says, if, you know, if I had only called, if I had only worked a little bit harder, if, if I would have worked and done something, if I would have used my control in a different way, I would have been able to get the outcome that I wanted. I would have been able to manifest the dream because I'm a dreamer and I make dreams come true and I'm the one who controls the dream and I failed myself. I failed myself. And so now in the future, I'm going to do it better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. This is where a bargaining healing would take place and it would all crash down into depression. I mean, if I worked that hard and gave that much and only got that much in return, what is there to life anyways? Why should I even try? Which is quite different. There's a difference between grieving and repentance. There's a difference between pity and surrender. And C.S. Lewis says this, that pain is continually working on us and in God's hands in the all-good project and he's working things to his good, pain, is, pain can and should drive us to worship. All of our good Surrender songs and worship songs within David's canon, right? They all start with pain. Pain is a vehicle. Pain is the vehicle that speaks loudly to us. And C.S. Lewis says it this way, that the pain that we're experiencing is traumatic. And we need to be acknowledging of the persistence of pain because pain does not take days, days off. Even if we don't want it to be there, if we, we try to mitigate it, inebriate it, get rid of it, pain insists on attention, says C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but it shouts to us in our pain. It could be the soil of idolatry or it could be the soil of worship, but God uses pain as a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so Judah says this, he's, he replies, says the man's questions us. he's like, dad, listen, you can't, change the te- you can't change the test. The test has come to you and you can't change the results that the doctor told you. You cannot change how your mom responded to you. You can't change how you responded. You can't change the past. There is so much you can't control, says Judah, right? So let's think about this. The voice of reason, the voice that used to be of debauchery and sin has now become the voice of faith and reason within this family. And Judas says this in a sober moment. 
send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. That's Genesis 3 right there. If you were to trust and surrender, you would have life and life abundance. But if you were to take matters into your own hands, redefine the terms of the test, pretend that something happened that didn't happen or pretend something didn't happen that did, and if you were to take control and autonomy on yourself, seizing control, you would die and not live. Okay, so this is what it's saying. The human test is the divine test. And the people that test you are really just sent by God to be the test, to refine who you are. And all of these tests are not wasted. They're all part of the refining and formative process to bring us to life, that we might look like his son and enjoy his inheritance. And so no test has come to you except for the test that God has empowered you to pass. And he's, he's giving you the test because he's not trying to hurt you or harm you. He's trying to give you life. He's trying to free you from yourself. Verse nine, I myself will guarantee his safety, says Judah. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if I had not delayed, we could have been through this test already twice times over. This is what Judah says. So, so we have seen a pretty marked change and shift, even in the conversation, even in the dynamic of the, the family that Judah, the one that slept with his daughter-in-law, got her pregnant, the one that came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery in the first place is now going to be the agent of change and faith in his life. As I, uh, my iPad apparently quit on me for the morning, so I'll go over here. Um, Judah has been changed. And... Um, and he has, um, uh, he, has, he has become a catalyst, as we'll see into the, into the verses that follow, become a catalyst for faith um, in, in the, in the decision-making room of his family. But God is showing himself to be faithful because of all the circumstances that are chasing out, changing outside of the family, what he is most concerned with is not so much what's outside of the family, but what's inside the heart of the family. He's not so much interested in the circumstance that the family is in or changing the circumstance, although he can and will change our circumstances in a flash. What he's most interested in is the miracle. Did you know that people don't change? Have you been with anybody for 20 years? Time doesn't heal and time doesn't change. Jesus has to change. And so to him, changing the cattle on a thousand hills or putting more wheat into the system or changing the economy is not nearly as much as a miracle as Judah and what he just said. He has just uh, caused the climate of fear within his family to change to faith. So, verse 11, it says this. So their father is influenced by this faith. Have you ever met somebody that's a little bit of fear and a little bit of faith? Somebody that's changing but isn't quite changed yet. Verse 11, this is what's happening inside the heart of the father. There's things that are going on outside, but inside of Jacob, inside of Israel, verse 11 says, it must, if it must be, then do this. He says, put some of your best products on, in the land. He says, put them in, in the bags, and, and he says, take them on down. I mean, put the Honey Nut Cheerios in there, for crying out loud. On the applesauce, I mean, what do we got? Just, we got nothing left. We got nothing left to lose. We got nothing left to gain. This is, Jacob just says, put, put it on the cart. He says, we're going to make up a little bit of a gift. He says, balm and, and honey and spices and myrrh and pistachio and nuts and almonds. Ah, we just, we put, I mean, I'm putting my favorite son on this thing. I might as well put it all down. And he says, take double the amount of silver. I mean, all the silver in the house, go find the silverware, whatever. Put it all in there with you for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of the sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake, says Jacob. 
Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. But as for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So Jacob looks around his house. He says, there's not really a lot left left to lose or left to gain. He's awakened all of a sudden from his little nightmare that he can't really control anything anyways. And so he's got to this beautiful place of I can't, but maybe God will. I mean, have you ever been there before? I mean, I don't really know what's ahead or what the plan is, but I'm just going to put all of my money on red right here. I'm going to put all of my stuff on this cart. And so he's been moved to this place of surrender. And this word even mercy right up there in the beginning of the passage, mercy is only, you know, this is used twice in the book of Genesis, once here and then once in the way that Joseph responds to the cart. It's the only time that mercy is used. And it's one of the attributes in Exodus 34, 6 to describe even who God is. And he's saying, I'm going to send all my stuff and maybe I'll get some mercy here. This place of anger, this place of bargaining, this place of depression, this place of surrender. And he's got everything on there. But what's interests me is, is not even just in the heart of, Joseph, of Jacob, but also what's on the cart that Jacob sends. In verse 11, this is what's on the itinerary. This is what's on the manifesto of this cart. The balm, the honey, the spices, the myrrh, the pistachio nuts, and the almonds. And I just read so much Bible. I, I, I can't look over a list like this. Like when this happens, I have to Google it. And of course, where does this appear? Somewhere else, right? So this appears somewhere else. So go with me up here on the screen. Genesis 37, 25 says this. Were you here on April 18th? We talked about this passage. I just read this passage like as if it was nothing. I didn't even know what it meant. And I just read it, verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, this is the brothers licking their chops at sticky fingers right after they buried their brother in the chasm. They eat their meal and this caravan of Ishmaelites comes along from Gilead. And it wasn't the Ishmaelites, it was God that had sent the cart. Bad thing that was ultimately gonna be turned for good. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. What in the world is that about? The second cart sends brothers to go, to go be a sacrifice, to go get the original brother that's supposed to return to him. The second cart has the same as the first cart, has brothers and stuff on it. The second cart, Jacob puts the stuff on it, but the first part, God apparently just put the stuff on it, and it's the same exact materials in the sense that both of these carts would have had brothers on it, and both of the carts would have had the same stuff, and they would have even smelled the same. What is that to say other than the fact, well, at least at face value, it's saying this, that God knew the sacrifice and the gift that Jacob was going to give before he even knew it. Matter of fact, he knew it four chapters earlier. He already knew what Jacob was going to give before Jacob ever gave it, which is crazy. He knew the sin that Jacob was going to commit, the sin that Judah was going to commit, and the guilt that they were going to feel from it, and the gift that they were going to give for it, and he provided for the first cart and the gifts for the second cart is the money that we tithe and the time that we give and the ways that we support others from us or from him in the first place. And the second dawning moment needs to be this, is that whatever you put in the cart in the first place isn't enough to cover the sin of the brother that you sent down to Egypt in the second place, right? There's, no, there's not enough pistachios and honey nut Cheerios in this world that can help to pay for the brother that you just murdered. Could we agree on that, right? And so there's a strong delineation here in that the sacrifice that Jacob gave was everything, but in the scope of the whole sequence, it's just not enough. The sacrifice is not the offering. And the things that he puts on that cart his whole entire life, although it's everything to him, it's nothing to God. 
And so the giving isn't so much about what can Judah give as though God needs it. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's calling Judah and Jacob to give because in giving, they get everything. Do you see that? Surrender is this. Surrender means I'm giving everything. Surrender is I'm not just giving 10% of my life. It's I'm giving all of my life. I'm giving everything that I have. But this one quotient is important. It's that I understand that in my giving of everything, I actually am giving nothing to him that he doesn't have. And I'm giving nothing in giving him my everything. This is what anger is. Anger means that because I give everything that I deserve everything. This is anger. Anger says to me, I gave everything to this family, so I deserve some respect around here. That's what anger is. It's, it's, it's a sense of control. It's grieving that's immature. It's immature grieving. I deserve this. I gave everything to this, and this thing is not coming out the way that I want. And so anger is saying, I give everything, and doggone it, if I give everything, I better get everything in return because my everything is everything. I work nine to five every day for this. This waiter better come back with my water right now, right? Because I work hard for this, and so I gave everything, and I deserve everything. And immature grieving and, and all that kind of stuff, it will take us, like, as, as it's trying to move us from, from, from that place and into the place of surrender, will eventually manifest itself in depression. It's just like everything is nothing, right? I gave everything. It didn't matter. I just give up. But surrender is uncomfortable because surrender is demanding both of those two worlds. It's demanding this tension place where I'm going to give everything and know that it's not enough. Did you know that you could give everything into your marriage and it might not blossom and bloom? I could give everything, right, into uh, church ministry and who knows what will happen because I'm not in control of it. You could give everything to your friend and the fairy tales say that if you're faithful, it's always fruitful, but how many of you guys know sometimes you're faithful and you don't see no fruit? Would you give it if you knew that it was nothing though? Like we would give it if it was everything and it gave us everything. And if we were over here, we could have this contract where I'd say low control, low responsibility. Hey, not my problem. But responsibility without control, that's the last place that humans want to be. Giving everything and expecting nothing in return. Man, that's not where we want to live. That is not, we don't want our cart with everything of our life going back down to Egypt, not knowing what's going to come back. That's the last place. It, it shows you why, grief, why acceptance is the last step because that's the last thing that I would choose. If you gave me a multiple choice answer, I want at least a little bit of control. And so the Bible visits us this morning. You can have kingdom or you can have control, but you cannot have both. You can have kingdom in your marriage or you can have control, but those two things cannot live together. And if you're telling your spouse, you got to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, I'm going to be on you and I'm going to be God in your life and the Holy Spirit and I'm going to give you carrots and sticks until you do exactly what I want and be made in my image. You can have your control, but you're not going to have the kingdom of heaven in your house. You're not going to know that person. You're not going to have real intimacy. They're not going to become the mother or the father they're supposed to be, right? You can have your control, but you can't have the kingdom of God because the kingdom is not controlled by you. Who is sovereign over this dream? Who's running it? Who is the author and the perfecter of the kingdom of heaven? Right? So, so he's, he's created a circumstance, but he's not so much worried about the all things out there. He's worried about the all things in here. And he's doing an all things ministry in you and me. And he's changing us from the inside out. He's changing us from the old Judah to the new Judah. And, he's, and he's, he's trying to convince us that the difference between the sacrifice and the offering, we give everything, right? We give the, the sacrifice, but it is not the offering. That's not to be conflated. All right, so verse 15 says this. So the men took the gifts down, double the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, and they hurried down to Egypt, and they presented themselves to Joseph. And Joseph saw Benjamin with them, and he said to the steward in the house, 
He said to the steward, he says, take these men to my house and slaughter an animal and prepare the meal. There's nothing in this test to be fearful of. This test is to help them, not to hurt them, right? It's, it's to heal them. It's not to hurt them. And so they go down this test, and we understand why they don't think that it is, because it doesn't seem like it's there to help them, right? But it is, because God is sovereign over the dream. And they are to eat with them at noon, with Joseph. And the man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. And now the men were frightened. That, that, moves, that word comes up a lot in this passage. They were frightened when they were taken to the house. And they thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put in our backs, on our back, in our sacks, and uh, in the first time. And so that's why we're in trouble. And he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and, and, and take all of our donkeys. It's like, I was thinking about this, like if, you know, the president of the United States were to call me up, you know, tomorrow and be like, hey, I don't know, Oliver, you know, I, yeah, I found you on the City Lights website and saw your six kids and you sh- guys should come on down to Washington, D.C. and I'm not really going to tell you why. And that'd be like me going like, I know what he's trying to do. That old Joe Biden, he's trying to steal my Honda Odyssey. That guy, I see he's been eyeing me. He wants a piece. He wants a piece of the dream, you know? And he's trying to steal, right? So there was Egypt or God, for that matter, need of these camels, right? That's the, that's the crux of this thing, is that, is that the, the test becomes hard when we don't trust the tester. It becomes hard when we question the challenge of the tester and the, and the, and the test seems like it's a trap if the tester doesn't have our best interests in mind. But, but God is not trapping us. He's testing us because he wants to refine us and, and, and to make us and form us into who he's created to be, into the image of his son. I was thinking about uh, back in the day, I was going to and fro back between my house and Kyra's house was like 17 houses apart. So I'd walk up and down there before I had a car and uh, just sing my day Matthew songs up and down and wear my Abercrombie and Fitch t-shirt and cargo shorts. It was fantastic. That was the dream. And uh, I was walking up there, and uh, one time this old guy was like, hey, son, like, come over here and uh, pick up these leaves. And I was like, well, you know, like back in the day, I didn't have anything to do. So I was like, okay. So it's the summertime, and I swept up the leaves. And then he was like, tell you what, thank you so much. That's very kind, because I just did it to be nice. And he was like, I'll pay you $10. All you got to do is like rake up all these leaves over here in this holly tree bush and just rake them all up. And it took me like 30 minutes. And back then, y'all, we made like a dollar an hour back in the 90s or whatever, right? So like that was a ton of money, you know? It's like, that's where you want to be, right? As a teenager, you want to get that job that people haven't thought about yet, because everybody's working at Blockbuster and they're making $3 an hour and they can make $10 an hour for 30 minutes or whatever. And he says, uh, he, I get all done. He says, you did a great job. And he's like, basically like, hey, listen, this was really just a test. He was like, I actually did all this to see as a kind of a job interview. And I want you to work over here for the summer, for the rest of the summer, and make $10 an hour which was like, I don't know, $20 an hour a day. It was great. This guy had money and it was, a, it was a great setup, right? But that's the idea, is that the test seems malicious depending on what is in the heart of the tester. If the tester's heart is to expose us and to fail us, like if he's giving the test to show us how bad we are, then the test is a trap because we're always going to fail it, right? But if the tester has our best interest in mind, then the test isn't there to fail us, it's there to form us. It's there to make us into the image of his son, And so there's no Bible character that walks in any amount of faith over any period of time, give it Adam or Abraham or Moses, that doesn't come to a tree of testing. Jesus says he's tested into the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, if there's any other way, take this test from me. But the Bible says that God's too good, that he doesn't tempt, he tests. And the test is always for our formation. It's a formative test. It's not to show us how bad we are. It's to show us how good he is and what he's making us in the middle of that test, that we would see perfect fear cast out perfect love cast out fear. But here's the trick, right? The struggle is, is that at the same time as God gives tests, we also know that there's another character, the serpent that slides in. And he turns every test into a trap. And he's the one that begins to question, did God really say that? Is God really as good as he said as he is? Did he forget about you? Is he, 
Is he mean and capricious? That's what he's always trying to convince us of. And that's why fear and faith are living in this test place. But the moment that we trust, the moment that we begin to see the tester in the middle of the test, there it is, we have our deliverance. There it is, we have our salvation. And so it kind of moves on and perpetuates and they begin to, to eat and feast. Verse 19, so they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And we beg your pardon, Lord. They said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each one of us had silver. We don't know how it got here, they said. The exact weight in the mouth of this sack. So we have brought it back with us and we have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in the sacks. And watch how they don't care about how much silver it is because the point was never the silver. It was about the heart. And God speaks through donkeys and rocks and Balaam and he's gonna speak through this servant. God's speaking all the time and this is the word of the Lord, really. It's all right. Shalom, he says, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you the treasure in the sacks. It was never about the cart. It was never about the sacrifice. It was always about the offering. And in giving everything, God wasn't getting anything. He was giving everything to us. And it's giving everything, expecting nothing that allows us to have everything from him. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to open up our hands because what he wants to give to us is so much greater than what we're holding on to. And so it's at the moment when he finally let go of his Honey Nut Cheerios that he's hanging on to for dear life that he finally opens up his hand and his family begins to receive this blessing. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water and washed their feet and provided fodder for the donkeys. Notice they didn't count the silver or start, you know, taking up oil offerings out of his cart. The prepare, uh, they prepared their gifts for Joseph arrived at noon because they had heard, what, uh, her, they, her, they heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts that they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him on the ground. And he asked them how they were and then they said, how is your, and then he said, how is your aged father? Uh, you told me about, is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father, is still alive. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. So here it is. This is all the brothers finally bowed down. When, when, when Timothy preached last week, it was only some of the brothers, but now all the brothers, exactly as God has promised, exactly as it was at the beginning of Genesis 37, the dream that God gave Joseph, it has happened just as he said it would happen. Who is the driver of the dream? This is what we're gonna come down to in the very end of this passage. Who is writing the dream? Who is authoring and perfecting the dream over our life? Are we chasing it to control it or is it chasing us that we might surrender to it? It's a pivotal question that we have to ask about who's writing this whole thing and why things happen as they do in the timing that they do. Who is writing the dream? Is it me or him? Verse 29, uh, closing up here. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? As he said, God be gracious to you, my son, deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep, the Bible says. He went into a private room and it says he wept there. How many guys have ever read the story of Joseph? You guys know that he weeps. He's weeping in private. He's weeping in public. He's weeping before the brothers. Has anyone ever done a study of how many times Joseph weeps? Is it, is it two times or three times or four times or six times? Would you take a guess, right? Of course, this is the answer, the Bible, right? He cries seven times. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He cries exactly seven times. This is, of course, the biblical thing, right? And not only that, Joseph cries chiastically. What in the world? So chiastically is a kind of a poem, and it chias, chiasms, and it, and it just means that like a line, it has like a similarity to a parallel line at the end of the thing. So it goes like this, A, B, C, D, C, B, A. You see that pattern? So it goes up ascending, A, B, C, and C, B, A. That's the chiastically. So he's weeping at different themes, and he weeps like at weeping number one, the same way as he weeps at seven, two, and six, three, and five, and then four is the middle. Four is like 
the apex of this theme. And he's weeping seven times exactly. The first time he weeps is over sin. It's hearing the confessed wicked deed. It's, it's the brothers he knows he's sinned against, but the brothers figuring out that they sin. And hearing it out of their mouth makes him cry. Joseph weeps over sin, not unlike Jesus weeps over sin. Two, he weeps at the arrival of Benjamin and Jacob, the presentation of just not the confession, but the repentance, and I'm coming back to try and mend up what's been wrong. He's weeping at the idea of his brothers realizing something was wrong and doing something about it, showing up for it, surrendering. Three, Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, revealing his heart of forgiveness that as the brothers turn to him, he meets them as they are, where they are. The mercy that, 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 uh, that Jacob hoped for actually does come to bear and into the story. And then lastly, D, the, the, the climax, the whole pivotal moment, the hinge of this story is Joseph weeping over his brothers in Genesis, in, yeah, Genesis 49, I think, uh, over the reconciliation over his brothers. And so what is the Bible saying? Other than this thing was not about the famine, it was all about the family, and God is doing all things, sparing no things to bring the family back together again. Those are the good old days. It's not gonna be about what happened in between the pictures, those moments, those fragments of celebration between and unity and community within the family of God is what he is dying for. And that is what he, is, what he weeps over and cries over. And just at the beginning of the story of Sarah, where God transforms the laughter of Sarah from the laughter of flippancy and sarcasm into the laughter of joy, so it is that he is showing that he is transforming our tears to, to be less tears of pity and more to tears of surrender. Less, less tears of it's their fault and life's not fair and I just give up into the tears of surrender that God is doing what I can't on my behalf for the good and glory of his kingdom and reconciling families together. Verse 31, uh, and it's, it's the closing passage, says this. After he had washed his face, he came out and con controlling him, he came out, controlling himself, said, serve the food. They served, him, uh, they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egypt could not eat with Hebrews, for that is a detestable thing in Egypt. The men had been seated before him in order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. Uh, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin portions was, Benjamin's portions was five times. So it's Cabernet, 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 Porterhouse, 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 Porterhouse. Given five times as much stuff, right, to test these brothers because the whole crux of their problem was the idol of favoritism in Jacob's heart towards the brothers and the hostility and the rivalry that came out of the siblings was the whole issue that divided the family. But now he's able to give five times more things to one brother than the other one, and all they can do is drink and be merry about it. Has God done some work here? Has God done the miracle? The miracle's not the bread, the miracle's the brothers. The miracle is the victory within family to unite the family back as one, to be the body again. And as much as everyone else's, they feasted and drank freely, which that is not even as liberal as a term as drink freely is there in the NIV or the ESV, but drank freely is a strong, a lot of drinking, okay? And they're hanging out, and the dream is realized. So a lot has transpired, but we see what Joseph is crying about. And we see where ultimately the downhill slope of sovereignty is leading, not to bad things, but to good things, and not just to isolated uh, retribution or vindication or just towards justice alone, but for relational oneness, for family. The whole thing was not about the famine. It is about the family. What is it in this movie City Slickers, right? When Curly goes and sends those two brothers out to go find treasure and they go into Arizona and dig out the gold or whatever and there's no real gold and they realize that the treasure was each other. That's what this is about. He's, he's doing all this and sparing no expense in your pain. For me, you know, a broken washer in the 
broken feet, right? And all the bills and the COVID and we had water flowing in and out of our house and Penny right there is a sovereign test anyways. Just Penny, my dog, is crazy. And all these tests are not for naught. They are all sovereignty tests and they're not really about, just about will we be honest with him about it, but it's will we surrender to the dream? And so the crux of the question again is this, who is sovereign over the dream? And that's an important question for you to ask because listen, if, if God is not sovereign over the dream, then we have to be. And if God is not in control, then our job is to chase the dream that's actually chasing us. And we think we have to construct it and control it. We think it's ours to gain or lose, or we think it's something that somebody can take from us. But God is saying that no dream that's really given by God can be taken or given anyways. I mean, think about this for a second. Isn't forgiveness basically based on sovereignty? If you believe that somebody took something from you that keeps you from getting into the divine promise, right, then there's no way you can forgive them. The only, the only oil we have for forgiveness is the belief that nobody can take anything from you in the first place and that anything that was taken to you or given to you was ultimately only taken by God and given to you in the first place by God himself. And if God is the author of the dream, then we don't control it. We just surrender to it. And in the human condition of grieving and our pain, our control and our angst is really about demanding that we can control the dream and get the dream on our terms. And it means that we waste and, and use so all of our energy towards trying to create this little, this little enclave of our dream. But God is saying that dream is a nightmare because it doesn't involve me. You don't own the dream and you're not sovereign over the dream. And the only one that can deliver the dream is me. And so Monday morning, right? Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, these people are coming to you. These circumstances from global level to national level to local level into your own life and heart. They're actually not distractions. They are the vehicle for the dream. They're the cart he's driving you into. And these things are the things that are waking us up from the dream because every dream without him is a nightmare in the first place. So who writes the dream really? Who is sovereign over the dream? So I have a couple of questions to consider. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'll invite the band to come forward. But I want you to consider these, these questions and maybe talk with somebody that you know and maybe journal or process a little bit, but it's an important question to be asking as you try and inventory the dashboard of what's going on in your life right now, the good, the bad, underneath the Romans 8 promise. If he's working all things together for good and he's not done working yet, then who are you really trusting to be sovereign over that dream? The thing about surrender is that it's not really actually passive. Surrender actually means giving everything. It actually means that because he is the author of the dream and I'm not the author then my giving everything isn't actually the impetus for the dream being delivered. My giving everything is actually nothing. And me coming to the edge of myself is the best thing because in giving everything, knowing it's nothing, I can trust that his everything is all that I need. Sovereignty is the space that I commit to myself of things I can't control. Because listen, if I can't control it, then God can do what he wants. But in the space that I can't control, if God is good, that means he chose to do it. I didn't make him do it. And I live in a world where the one who writes my dreams is for me and not against me. And if he is for me, then who can be against me? So sovereignty is the space of I can't, but God can. And if we live in a space where we have no place, where we do not control the outcomes, or at least we think we can control the outcomes, then we have no place for sovereignty if we have no place for surrender. That is the garden in which worship grows. That is the garden where breakthrough grows. And that is the garden where the dream lives. And if we, we mitigate or minimize that space and we have no space where we don't have control, we will not have the dream. Because you can have kingdom or you can have control, but you cannot have both. So, so, so surrender is not giving up, right? It's showing up. 
Surrender is giving everything knowing it's not enough, knowing that he must be enough and he's asked me to give everything so that I can have everything in him. So number one, I just have it as notes, that surrender must mean responsibility. We don't like to live in places of responsibility where we have control, so we only like to live in places where control and responsibility are calibrated. But the gospel is saying we are taking responsibility for things that we can't control. We can't control. We cannot control. If we go out to go do Matthew 28 and go make disciples, it necessarily means we're going to feed people that are going to be mean to us, right? It means that we're going to love family members that are going to reject us. It absolutely means we're going to, you know, lead Bible studies that are going to be failures. It means that you're going to apply for jobs that aren't going to turn out the way that you're supposed to, right? Because this is part of the ingredients of the All Things Project. There has to be things in my life I can't control. And if I only do things that I can control, don't take responsibility and ownership says Judah I'm going down there if my brother doesn't come back it's on me if I don't have any responsibility I control I don't have surrender surrender means showing up not giving up number two the surrender has to mean repentance and so yeah you come home at five o'clock and they were super ugly to you and mean but then but the all things project is less concerned about what's going on out there it's concerned about what's going on in here and the greatest good for me is that those things would work into these things and make me look more like Jesus for the sake of feeding the nations in famine. And so he does not care about the circumstance. I mean, he cares about the circumstance, but he cares most about the family. We don't, we don't talk about, we don't worship, write worship songs about the famine. We write worship songs about the faith. And so that becomes the classroom. If my eyes are out here, I'm not thinking about in here. And here is where his work is, is being had, the repentance moment. Lastly, relationship. There's no such thing as surrender without relationship. And we know, and you could write a book on it, and how much relationship puts us in areas of uncontrol. It'd be easier to be isolated and painless, but a painless life is not surrendered. And so it means you've got to go listen to people that aren't right and listen to them and, and, and partner with them and take on ideas because you might have one ear in the situation, but you don't have both. And there's other people in there that are speaking to you and God is part of, you know, part of the journey. And so necessarily surrender cannot mean an environment where I host the meeting and nobody else says anything to it, right? So relationship has to be the, the ingredient of surrender. So I don't know where, where any of this stuff hits you, but I, I know that this scripture is calling us to something that is painstaking and powerful at the same time. It is at the edge of ourself where we have to come to terms that everything that I give does not ultimately give me the promise. It's his faithfulness. It's his word that gives me the promise. It's not my effort. It does not mean that I, that I, that I, um, that I forfeit and I just don't do anything. It means that I actually give more and I give everything, trusting that it's not enough, trusting that he's the one that has to bring the cart back to Egypt and back out again. I want to invite you to stand as we kind of pray and, and, and respond this morning. Prepare our hearts for a sacrifice that will be pleasing to you, Lord Jesus, as we respond to you in worship this morning. And Lord Jesus, in any altar where you would call us to, to lay down everything, let, we, let us know the difference between the sacrifice and the offering, Lord. Lord, that we bring the sacrifice, but you are the one that brings the offering. And we can bring the spices and the myrrh, and these are sweet aromas to you, but it's not like you need the camels, Lord. You asked for a contrite heart, that we would come to you to give everything knowing that you are the everything. You are the everything, Lord Jesus. So I just pray in these little moments, I just sense in the room that there's all sorts of little dreams that are on little altars. And I pray, the Lord, that you would just give us that faith, that faith of Judah, the faith of, of, of Abraham, the faith of Joseph, Lord, that we would just lay down everything knowing that you would, you would never have us outgive you, that you would always give in return. And you're not trying to hurt us, you're trying to help us in this test. And so thank you for delivering your dream in your sovereign son's name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.